Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series today, Heaven and Hell. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, The Intermediate State. Paul arrived in the Greek city of Athens during his second missionary journey. And although Athens at that time was not the most important city in Greece, it was at the center of Greek thinking, both in terms of religion and philosophy. As Paul is waiting for his missionary team to join him, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols, and that's in Acts 17:16. So representations of gods and goddesses, that was a religious practice utterly condemned in the Bible and abhorrent to Jews. Well, that was both abundant and central to Greek culture and thought. So Paul began to discourse or dialogue in that city, and he found willing participants to engage in a process of reasoning regarding faith in Christ. And he started in a Jewish synagogue, but he soon found himself in a marketplace. And in that culture, this was the acceptable way of communicating ideas. Well, all was going well. People were engaged and willing to dialogue and wanting to hear more until, according to the account, Paul indicates that God has fixed a date wherein he would judge the world through the man he had appointed. And he, of course, was referring to Jesus. Still, everyone was listening. They were intrigued. But then Paul said something that seemed incredible to the Greek mind. Paul said that God had given assurance that this man, Jesus, will judge the world by raising him from the dead. And according to Luke's account of the event, when the leading intellectuals of Athens heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Well, the modern reader of this ancient account might wonder why mocking began at the mention of the resurrection. See, the idea of life after death was well accepted in Greek beliefs. You know, for instance, the very famous incident of Socrates' death, well, that's recounted by his student Plato. And Plato says that when Socrates was forced to drink the deadly cup of hemlock, He had a happy disposition. He expected a joyous life after death, and most Greeks did. So what then brought about the mockery when Paul mentioned the resurrection of Jesus? And the answer is quite simple. Paul's description of the resurrection centered on the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Paul would have described Jesus crucified and laid into a tomb and then raised bodily from the dead. So his dead body was not only raised to life, but was transformed at the same time. His resurrection body was no longer subject to death, disease, or decay. Well, in contrast, Greeks were dualists. They made a radical distinction between body and the soul. And so in Greek thinking, the body was the prison house for the soul. Hence, bodily existence was inferior to pure spirit. So for Plato, the disciple of Socrates, there's a visible world and then there's an invisible or spiritual world. And Plato believed that the great creator created the soul of the universe. And furthermore, the highest part of the soul of man, well, that was made of the same substance as that of the universe. But Plato also taught that there's a part of the soul and of the creation of the human body that had been entrusted and created by the younger gods. And this lower aspect of the soul and of the physical world is inferior to pure spirit. So for Plato, the body, well, that was the enemy of the soul. And upon death, the souls of wise men and philosophers who've 
purify themselves from the pollutions of the body while they depart from bodily existence into pure spirit. So the body was conceived of as a sackcloth robe or a tomb or a grave. And some unworthy souls, the Greeks argued, sink beneath the stream into bodily materiality. So this belief system helps us understand why when Paul spoke of the bodily resurrection of Jesus, well, the Greek philosophers in Athens mocked. See, body and flesh in the physical realm, well, those were considered a part of the lower order of things. They were inferior. And to argue that God demonstrated the authority of Jesus by raising him from the death of the body, well, that was complete nonsense. See, this event in Athens presents us with a clash between the Hebraic biblical worldview and that of the Greeks. Well, John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, this verse expresses the very heart of the gospel. The most amazing event in all history, an event of inexpressible beauty, is when the eternal Son clothed himself in human flesh. Well, the Greeks would have been appalled. Flesh, they argued. Well, that's the lower level of existence that we're trying to escape. And yet, 1 John 1 verse 1 says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, this we proclaim to you. In other words, the greatest and most wonderful thing that ever happened occurred in flesh and blood. It occurred in a real body with with a head and torso and arms and hands and fingers with eyes and sights and sounds. And we're declaring, says John, not a spiritual ideal apart from matter, but rather we're proclaiming that God stepped into human history in flesh and blood. And John thought this was so important that in 1 John 4 verses 2 and 3 he writes, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist. So why is so much made of the physicality of Jesus? Why are those who deny the full humanity of Jesus so thoroughly condemned? And the answer is that this has everything to do with the God of the Bible. Now, even though God is not physical, he himself is pure spirit, and yet out of his goodness created a physical world. And according to Psalm 19, verse 1, the physical heavens declare the glory of God. And according to Isaiah 43, verse 7, the physical creation of human beings is for the glory of God. So let's remember what the Bible actually teaches about the physical world and about our own physical body. Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. See, unlike Greek thought, where the body is a lower level of existence, here the body is essential to our humanity. You know, in his excellent book, Systematic Theology, author Michael Horton puts it very well. He says, man is bodily, and therefore the scriptural way of expressing this truth is not that man has a body, but that man is body. Scripture does not represent the soul or spirit of man as created first and then put into a body. The body is not an appendage. So why is it so important to review this data? Well, many Christians mistakenly think of heaven as non-physical, entirely in spiritual terms. And the reason they think that 
is not because the scripture has informed them of that view. Rather, they've unwittingly drunk at the well of Greek philosophy. You know, I've been at more than one graveside memorial service where the preacher has said, look, this is just the man's working clothes. It's not the real him. Now, is that biblical? See, the idea that we're simply a spirit in a box, so to speak, or that we are only genuinely and essentially ourselves in our spirits or our soul, that's unbiblical. See, against this background of what it means to be human, we're still left with a conundrum of death. If death represents the tearing of our spirits from our bodies, and if the hope of the believer is the reuniting of body and spirit, how are we to understand what happens to a believer at death? The Bible teaches that we will receive our new bodies at the second coming. So what happens in the intermediate? See, what happens to a believer after he or she dies? You know, for those of us who are facing the end of our lives now, this must be a very important part of our thinking. And for those who have had loved ones who have passed on, they need to have hope. Jesus gave that kind of hope to the thief who was hanging on the cross next to him. Luke 23, 43. Today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus said it would happen that very day. Well, the term paradise is interesting because it speaks of a garden. And should we think of the intermediate state in physical terms? Well, the word paradise is used in only two other places in the New Testament. You know, it's used in 2 Corinthians 12, 2-4. There Paul uses it in terms of a vision. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. There's much to consider in this passage, but let's consider only the use of the term third heaven and the term paradise. Notice that Paul uses those two terms in a synonymous fashion. The third heaven and paradise, well, that's the same thing. So for Paul, the term heaven can be used in a number of ways, but here it means the dwelling place of God. Jesus was promising the thief on the cross that immediately upon his death, he would be in the dwelling place of God. Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld focus on the use of expositional teaching of the Bible, a verse-by-verse, in-depth discovery of Scripture, allowing the Word of God to speak for itself, understanding its context, eternal relevance for today, tomorrow, and for the life of every believer. Sarah wrote to say, I so appreciate this teaching by Dr. John Newfeld. This message has come at a very important time. I am grateful for the wisdom and insight. And we're grateful for all of our listeners, but also that God's timing is perfect and that the Word of God taught faithfully speaks directly into the life of every believer. And don't forget this month that Dr. John's newest book, Heaven and Hell, is being made available for free simply for the asking. So call us today to request your copy or to make a ministry gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. At the risk of being redundant, we're saying that no believer upon death goes into unconscious existence. Instead, they enter the paradise of God immediately. 
2 Corinthians 12 contains Paul's description of his own experience of going into the third heaven. He says he doesn't know if that vision was in the body or out of the body. And that's to say, well, he wasn't sure whether he was actually physically there or whether he simply saw it in a vision. The experience was real enough, but later as he was considering the experience, he doesn't know exactly how it is that he experienced it. Could the intermediate state be something like Paul's experience? You know, for a great many Bible teachers, the intermediate state is an extraordinary period in our existence when we live without a body in paradise. But unlike the experience of Paul, we're aware that we're without the body. But it is that idea, that idea of a disembodied spirit that has some of us concerned. How can such a thing exist? I mean, for one, it seems to resemble the Greek ideal rather than the biblical one. And secondly, one has to wonder how it's possible for the soul to think and feel and act outside of the body. See, up till death, the soul has known no existence apart from the body. So is it now to exist, even for a brief period of time, in a conscious fashion with no body? See, how are we to understand this consciousness? Now, Paul does say that the intermediate state is better by far than living in this fallen earth. And yet, some of us have struggled to be convinced. I mean, drifting about in a disembodied spirit seems to go against the very essence of the Bible's teaching on the importance of the body. And after all, we're not a spirit who happens to have a body. We are at all times both physical and spiritual at the same time. So what does the Bible actually teach about the intermediate state? So let's begin by admitting that we don't have the kind of clarity that we might want. But we do have a clear teaching on the importance of the body and of the importance of the physical realm. So where do we start? Perhaps the place to start is to go back to Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It's found in Luke 16, 19 to 31. If we study it, we should notice several important features. First, the rich man died and was buried. Next, we encounter him in Hades. He's in torment. Then he looks at a distance and sees Abraham with Lazarus being comforted at his side. Finally, he calls out. He wants Lazarus to bring him water to cool his tongue. So does a disembodied spirit have a tongue? Is the spirit able to see as we see today? You know, if the parable is taken at face value, it seems to have all the marks of physical existence. The rich man sees with eyes and is complaining of physical anguish. He seemingly speaks with mouth and tongue about the longing for physical water on his physical tongue. But to this, many would say, well, wait a minute, you're pressing the parable to make it say too much. Now, clearly the point of the parable is that immediately after death, both the righteous and the unrighteous become aware of the eternal spiritual status. But does that necessarily mean that status spoken of is physical. You know, the parable of Luke 16 can be interpreted in a literal manner, but some would argue it ought not to be. You know, are there other hints about what our experience will be like in the intermediate state? Well, yes, there are. The Bible records several occasions in which people actually saw those who died. One is in 1 Samuel 28, and that's the incident in which Saul calls on a medium to speak to the deceased prophet Samuel. Well, the woman's afraid, for even though she does not know the king is before her, she does know that the king has forbidden mediums to operate in Israel. Nonetheless, she reluctantly agrees. So a seance begins, and to the woman's surprise, Samuel actually shows up, and Saul asks, what does he look like? And she then describes him. 
She says he's an old man. He's wrapped in a robe. Well, the idea of a physical robe might not be surprising, but it's the idea that Samuel would appear physically old. That's surprising. Do we maintain our age in the intermediate period? Let's go to Matthew 17. Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. There the three disciples see Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus, and they appear bodily. Finally, we might also go to the book of Revelation, and John describes a scene in heaven in which the righteous dead appear before Christ. Revelation 6 verse 9 says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they bore. Now, this is a description of the martyrs, and they're pictured as being under the altar. But in reading this passage, the reader is immediately struck by the phrase, the souls of those. So it's very easy to conceive of these martyrs as having souls but no bodies. Now, we've seen passages that seem to speak of the physicality of the intermediate state, and yet here we have a picture of souls with no reference to bodies at all. But we do well to notice the rest of Revelation. Well, chapter 6, verse 11 says, Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little while longer. Now, the white robe is a robe of honor that marks their special place as martyrs. A robe, however, sounds physical. I mean, how does a disembodied soul wear a physical robe? So either the language of the soul is symbolic or the language of the robe is symbolic. And because the book of Revelation has so many images, both real and symbolic, it's not always easy to detect how each image is to be understood. But it should be apparent that the picture of the souls under the altar can't be used as objective evidence of disembodied spirits in heaven. But we can come to a fairly certain conclusion. Whenever language is used to speak of the intermediate state, the language is always language that employs physical bodily existence interacting with a physical environment, and that's entirely in line with what the Bible speaks of as the real essential nature of humanity. See, in the end, we're going to have to admit some agnosticism regarding this issue. Unlike our final state, the intermediate state is one that will remain shrouded with some mystery. Some will argue that perhaps Paul's experience of the third heaven is the best way to understand the intermediate state. The experience is real and physical, yet we're left to wonder if it's a vision or if it's a real physical experience. You know, some uncertainty about the nature of the intermediate state must be allowed to remain. However, we should not be quick to adopt the idea of disembodied spirits in heaven. I mean, perhaps Randy Elkhorn is right when he suggests that God will design a temporary body for us. However, I'm not completely satisfied with his explanation. The idea of a temporary body leaves me with more questions than it answers. Now, is it true that God assigns temporary bodies in heaven, and are these bodies inferior to the final body that we're going to receive? And if so, in what respects? And given that our new body in the new heaven and earth will be the self-same bodies that we had here, is the intermediate body a completely different body? Well, how so? Has God built in some deficiencies in these temporary heavenly bodies? As we can see, these questions are not easily answered. I find it better to say that we experience life in a physical way in the intermediate state. But we, like Paul, may say that until we receive our new bodies, 
we were never fully aware if we were in the body or out of the body. See, the answer to the question of the nature of our experience in the intermediate state may prove to be more mysterious than we've yet grasped. Human life is physical and spiritual rolled up into one. And since the saints who die and enter the Lord's presence are portrayed in physical ways, it seems quite likely that's how our experience will be. After all, we're in the garden of paradise. We're invited to eat of the tree of life. The Bible describes wearing robes, speaking with real mouths and tongues. But in his wise providence, God has so ordained it that the intermediate experience remains shrouded in mystery. It's a physical experience to be sure, but it's not the final physical experience that we eagerly await. In the end, what we're going to have to say is, if we die and go to be with the Lord, immediately upon going there, we will say, this is better by far. Thanks, John. You know, it it seems apparent that Paul is suggesting the intermediate stage is a stage where we have no body. Paul says to be out of the body is to be present with the Lord. But I think you think differently. Well, I'm not sure I do, but let me say this. It is true that to be out of the body, so we, uh, at the stage of death, the, the body is and the soul are torn from each other. And the soul goes to be with the Lord and the body is planted into the ground and the soul awaits for the final body at the end of the age. So I'm not denying that. I think that's what the Bible teaches. Uh, The only thing that I'm saying here is to be out of the body is to be present with the Lord. It doesn't tell you what is the experience of the person who's present with the Lord. Now, the Bible presents us with, frankly, not a lot of information about what that experience actually is. I only make the case that it does seem to me that as I think about, you know, the biblical experience of being human, it always seems bodily. So using Paul's own experience where he says, I went up to the third heaven and he said, like, I don't know if it was in the body or out of the body. I'm only saying perhaps and perhaps, perhaps our experience in the intermediate stage will be one which will feel to us very bodily. Um, but we await the resurrection body nonetheless. So um, again, if you want to take issue with me, I I don't want to make a federal case of this, but it does seem to me that we should not fear the intermediate state as some erythral realm uh, which seems so inhuman to us. We should rather look at it and say, well, uh, whatever our experience is here on earth, the one in the intermediate state is better by far. Thanks so much, John, and remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Heaven and Hell, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. For many, the most misunderstood truths of the Bible revolve around the reality of heaven and hell. Misshapen by popular culture and misinformation, many Christians fail to have a true understanding of eternity. In response, Dr. John Newfeld and Back to the Bible Canada present a new book, Heaven and Hell. For the month of November only, this important book is now available for free as our gift. Bruce Ware, professor of Christian theology at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, wrote about the book, It is arguable that nothing in this life now matters more than knowing what happens then. Although this book is relatively short, it is packed. Readers will find excellent biblical exposition and incisive analysis 
that will inform their minds and inflame their hearts. To request your copy of Heaven and Hell today, or to send a gift to support the Bible teaching ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.